Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. It's been called our body's most underrated organ, and we need to hear what it's telling us. Listen to your gut, tonight on Call with the Prairie Duck. On Call with the Prairie Duck, I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, your Prairie Doc this evening. The gut is often referred to as our body's second brain. Tonight, we're talking gastroenterology. But first, a look at this week's Prairie Doc Quiz question. It is a true or false question. The rate of people being diagnosed with colon or rectal cancer each year has dropped overall since the mid-1980s. True or false? We'll give you the answer at the end of the program. Joining us tonight in the studio is Dr. Sarah Bly, who practices gastroenterology at Midlands Clinic in Dakota Dunes, South Dakota. Welcome, Dr. Bly. Thank you. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, as you said, I'm uh, Sarah Bly. I am originally from Coleman, South Dakota, and where my parents still live. And I did my undergraduate college training as well as medical school at University of South Dakota and then my internal medicine and gastroenterology training down at University of Nebraska Medical Center and have now found a, my home and my niche in terms of both family and work practice in the Dakota Dunes, Sioux City area. Okay, so do you, are you mostly in the dunes, mostly in Sioux City, or how does that work? It's a pretty uh, even split. I, I see all my clinic patients in the dunes, and we do have a procedural center there, but I do also service both of the hospitals that are located within Sioux City proper. Okay. And uh, so what is gastroenterology? So gastroenterology is the medical uh, study and treatment of any disorder of the gastrointestinal tract, which includes anywhere from your swallowing tube, esophagus, stomach, your intestines, as well as the liver and pancreas organs. And what made you decide to choose gastroenterology? That may be a little bit different story, I guess, than most. <laughs> I went to college thinking I was going to be an eye doctor, and then I got involved in a research lab where we studied GI physiology, gastrointestinal physiology, and I found it really fascinating. And so then all the way through medical school and residency, that was always just the part that was calling to me. So cool. here we are. And what now that you've been practicing for a while, what do you find most rewarding? I would say I have two answers to that question. One, it is extremely rewarding uh, to prevent colon cancer. Um, when people have their colonoscopies and you take out those polyps and you know you're making a difference in that one person's life that day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing is I have always found, even when I was in my primary care days, that it was very rewarding to see a patient in the clinic and make an intervention that would make them get better and actually stay out of the hospital. So that's yeah. still something I get to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Um, you know, along those lines, one of the things I can think of gastroenterology uh, that, you know, in the clinic you can make a difference and prevent some 
complication is ulcers and mm -hmm. heartburn and reflux. Mm -hmm. Very common problems that we see in GI every day. Um, what, what do you usually recommend for treatment? How, how do you approach that usually? Well, it depends a little bit on the severity of someone's symptoms, the frequency as well. For people who have occasional heartburn from time to time, it may be as simple as avoiding the foods that trigger it or taking a simple antacid when the symptoms come on. But if you have very severe or frequent symptoms, it is likely beneficial to take an everyday preventative medication. Some of the foods, some of the things you might look for that are triggers are, would be what? The most common triggers would be spicy foods, tomato-based products, citrus fruits such as oranges, pineapple, grapefruit, things like that. And um, some people are very triggered by chocolate, although that is less than other people. Coffee, one of my favorites. Yeah, it is amazing. You know, it, it does seem like more and more people are drinking coffee or, you know, all the lattes and mm -hmm. stuff, and then more and more of it. And it is amazing. I think caffeine is starting to cause more issues with reflux for some people. Yes, caffeine, and, and that's the interesting thing about coffee is that caffeine is a trigger as well as the coffee itself is fairly acidic. So both can, so it's kind of a double whammy if you drink the yeah. fully leaded coffee. Do you think alcohol is much of a trigger too? Alcohol is a big trigger and, and actually not a food, but smoking as well. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. so working on lifestyle mm -hmm. changes, probably losing weight. It's true, if you carry especially extra weight around your midsection, that puts a lot of pressure up on your diaphragm, which can cause more reflux disease. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly some people have a, uh, a hiatal hernia. Mm -hmm. How does that contribute to reflux? Sure, so it's a predisposing factor, something that might make you more likely to have it. And what it is is the, um, your diaphragm that separates your chest cavity from your belly cavity has a small opening in it that allows your swallowing tube to come through and meet up with your stomach. And over time, that opening can sort of get stretched out or be too big. And then that is what allows your stomach to slide up into your chest cavity. That's what a hiatal hernia is. And then that diaphragm is part of your body's natural barrier that helps to keep all the acid that's in the stomach down in your stomach instead of being up in your throat. So now if some of your stomach is sitting up here in the chest, that acid has free access to come up. So when someone has that, are you more likely to recommend medication or surgery since there's kind of a structural Sure, and, and that's an excellent question because actually the other part that is one of the biggest contributors to reflux disease is also a structural thing and that's the muscle at the lower part of your esophagus, it's the gatekeeper. It's supposed to just be open when you need to swallow or belch or rarely vomit. Um, but in people who have reflux disease, it's often opening more frequently than it's supposed to. So it really is, a lot of the issue is anatomic. However, we have very, strong, effective medications that can manage reflux symptoms and complications very well. And so most people don't require surgery for this issue. And so those medications like Prilosec or Nexium, Zantac, mm -hmm. or Omeprazole, mm -hmm. so on, the generic names. But, you know, some of those have gotten a bad rap lately. Why is mm -hmm. that? Well, in particular, the, the Zantac, since you mentioned it, is one that um, essentially there's there's different chemicals that are sometimes in pills of all sorts that have may not be necessarily a known cancer-causing agent, but ha there's enough data to suggest maybe. 
And since we don't really know, the FDA says, okay, you can put that in your pill if you have to, as long as you keep it below a certain amount. But any company that's going to do that, they have to do quality control. And essentially that particular drug is one that failed its quality control. And so there was more than the acceptable amount. Now, does that mean it's a risk amount? We'll never really know. The good news is we're getting it out of the, of the world so that we don't have to test that fact. And the generic there was ranitidine. Correct. And, you know, I think in the end, it's not really the medicine that did it, but right. the how right. to make it into the pill. That's exactly right. There, it's not the chemical compound that was fixing the heartburn that, was, that is this potential cancer risk. It's, it's additives in the, in the pill. Yeah. It's a similar additive that was in, and there was a popular antihypertensive that got pulled a couple years ago. I can't remember which one it was now. Yeah, there's a combination yeah. lisinopril and yeah. hydrochlorothiazide right. yeah, for the combo. So yeah. then I had to prescribe a bunch of people them Separate. separately. Right, because yeah. the, <laughs> the, the drug that's doing the job was safe. Yeah. It was the, the house that it was carried in that was right. maybe not. So it's, it, you know, it seems like probably more effective is the PPIs, proton right. pump inhibitors, mm -hmm. omeprazole, and so on in, mm -hmm. in that ozol family correct how do they help and do you often recommend those things i do and they're often the most effective acid reducer around and the reason is is your stomach makes these little pumps that churn out the acid and what these medicines do, that's why they're called proton pump inhibitors, is they shut down the production of the pump that creates the acid. So they're really very effective at cutting down or limiting your stomach acid compared to the other ones mentioned, ranitidine or what most people use at this point in time, which is famotidine or pepsid. Um, those, the, your pumps still make the acid, but they turn off the signal to release it. And then things like Tums, Rolades, Alka-Seltzers, just kind of back to good old-fashioned high school chemistry, acid in a base and neutralize it. And so, so the omeprazole is really the, or the similar drugs in this category, is really the most potent acid reducer. And what are some of the reasons we don't want to be on them long term if we can help it? Right. So your body uses stomach acid to absorb calcium out of the diet. So if you're on these medications for many years, you do end up accumulating some risk about not absorbing enough calcium to keep your bones strong and healthy is, is the biggest risk factor with these medications. Yeah. And, you know, of course, it's strong, healthy bones is, is good, so Very you don't important. end up falling and breaking a hip someday Correct. or anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I don't know if, if, if you've seen that calcium in your diet mm -hmm. in general is more helpful than calcium pills. The pills are actually, from what I've heard, more likely to end up in stones, kidney stones, or your arteries, as opposed to in your diet. And I don't know if you've done any yeah. research well, no, on that. I, but. I, I haven't necessarily done research on that specifically, but I would say I would agree with that. And a lot of it has to do with the dose. Um, you're taking yeah. a very large dose at once, which actually your body can't even absorb the full amount of calcium that's in one tablet at one time. Mm. Um, yeah. It's part of, if you think back to being very young and learning about three servings of milk or calcium a day and it, it has to do with how much your body can absorb at once. It's not that you need so so much that you have to have it in three doses, it's that separating it out makes it really more yeah. able to come into your body. 
One more question about heartburn sure. and reflux and ulcers, mm -hmm. which sometimes can form. Yes. If it, you know, from eating away and then you get this ulcer mm -hmm. and then they can bleed. Yes. It seems like some people that have a lot of anxiety mm -hmm. get ulcers. Are they related? Anxiety does, or emotional stress of any kind does not cause an ulcer, but it can exacerbate the symptoms of an ulcer. The two most common causes of ulcers are actually a bacterial infection called H. pylori, and then very common arthritis medications such as ibuprofen and Aleve. Physical stress to the body can cause an ulcer, so sometimes when people are sick or in the hospital, we'll put people on acid reducers to make sure they don't get an ulcer while they're ill. Is it, do canker sores fall in that same category then basically as far as Canker sores are totally separate deal. Ah, <laughs> They're totally different kind of All ulcers. Right. They I've are seen them often, come from stress too, but they are often triggered by stress. Both physical and emotional stress can trigger canker sores. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, should you be diagnosed with colon cancer, there are steps that are part of the treatment. Your oncologist will help you through the process that has historically good outcomes. I was diagnosed in. Uh, February of 2015. I really did not have any signs. It was a matter of I had turned 50 and I was in the last month of my 50th year as they say and I knew that if I didn't have my colonoscopy my mother was going to schedule one for me and would go with me to the doctor and embarrass me. I had my colonoscopy on uh, Monday morning and I knew by Friday that I had cancer and it was rectal cancer and literally the ball started rolling as you know you'll need to have this appointment you will be receive a phone call from this doctor's office and, and it began then I started meeting with uh, oncologists and the oncologist had me meet with um, my surgeon and I had a port put in and um, that would be for chemo, uh, blood tests, any of that. They would just use my port instead of going through veins. Uh, and honestly, it moved pretty fast because um, once it was determined that I had cancer, there was no waiting. It was, process began. I have an ostomy. So they removed part of my colon and my rectum and I have a permanent ostomy. Um, options were that they would go in and option number one is remove the cancer and everything would be fine. Uh, realistically, uh, option number two was going to be they would put a temporary ostomy. Uh, and three was they would have to do permanent. And uh, the decision was made before uh, my surgery that if that's the case, the doctor had permission to proceed with having a permanent ostomy put in. Well, I actually was cleared um, in 2020 okay. is when we finally, we you know, had my final CT scan, all my blood work was done, they were not detecting any cancer at all, everything was going quite well, so I've been released from my oncologist. We go back to the care of the primary uh, doctor, so my advice to anyone is to have a good relationship with your primary and do what you're told because my primary was also pushing me to have a colonoscopy when I turned 50.
That was an interesting graph they had there of showing colon cancer rates increase as you get older. Mm -hmm. um, and, and thankfully, uh, colonoscopies and colon cancer screening have helped to decrease the, the rates Correct. overall. Mm -hmm. But we are seeing in, in some younger people. Mm -hmm. Why do you suppose that is? If, do you know? Uh, that is not completely understood at this point in time. It is likely linked to something, whether it's in our diets or our environment in some way that tends to be turning on these genes at an earlier age that cause these mutations in our, in our body to make these polyps and things. Um, but it is the reason why the screening recommendation is changing from age 50 to 45. Yeah, and that you know hasn't caught on with some insurance companies That's yet, correct. unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, definitely, it's easier if someone has a family history of colon cancer of getting mm -hmm. them an earlier colonoscopy, and it and but yeah, you know, in general, they're starting to recommend age forty-five for everyone, even low risk. But are you finding you can get? the insurance companies to prove that yet or not? I would say it's very variable and it's generally what we recommend when people are trying to schedule it before age 50, we just recommend that they call their insurance and find out if it'll be a covered benefit or not. Now certainly because we recommend it, I would still always offer it to a patient, but they need to be aware that there could be some cost to them. Okay, and, and of course every situation is different for people and they mm -hmm. should talk to their doctor when they recommend having it done. Um, if someone has a family history of colon cancer, what do you generally recommend when they start screening? It does depend when their family member actually had colon cancer and what degree that relative is to them. So generally increased screening is recommended if it's a first degree relative such as your parents' siblings. Um, and if they had it at a young age, say 50, then you'd want to begin usually 10 years before that age. Um, so even as early as 40, you might be screening. Uh, or if somebody has it very young, in their 30s or 40s, it may be even earlier. So generally, at least 10 years before the age when they had the cancer. And then your screening needs to be more frequent as well. If you have a family member, we generally recommend, even if you have a normal exam, that you come back every five years because you may be at an increased risk. Why is it that some people are supposed to come back after three years, sometimes five years mm -hmm. after colon polyps? Sure, it depends on the even ten sometimes. Yeah, it depends on the number, the type, and the size. So most colon polyps are either what's called an adenoma or hyperplastic. These hyperplastic polyps are not precancerous. In theory, they could live in you for forever and never cause a problem. We can't tell for sure when we're looking on the inside, so we just take them all out regardless. So that's where you might have polyps and they might still come back and say, hey, you can come in 10 years. Um, these adenomas or precancerous polyps, again, they're not cancer yet and we take them out, so that one's not coming back. But the idea is if you grow another one, we want to make sure that when we come back, it's still just a small polyp and not something more serious. And if they're larger than a centimeter or a particular high-risk type of polyp, that's when we might say one year or three years come back versus if it's an standard adenoma be a five years. Yeah. Um, what do you think about some of the at-home colon cancer screening kits? Well, I'm a little bit biased on that front. I would generally recommend that you come for your colonoscopies, but um, that being said, they're not invasive. So every invasive procedure does have some risk. Colonoscopies, mm -hmm. fortunately, a very low risk procedure, but obviously more than not undergoing a procedure, mm -hmm. so that it does have that advantage. Um, the 
disadvantages are there's a little bit higher false negative rate, meaning you could have a negative test when there was in fact a cancer on the inside. It's still very low and uncommon with those tests, but more so than with a colonoscopy. And then the final thing to consider is that those tests are truly just a screening test mm -hmm. where the colonoscopy is both screening and preventative yeah. because you can take the polyps out and prevent cancer where if you have the screening test with just polyps it will usually be negative. Some polyps will turn it positive but usually be negative and so then you haven't done anything to prevent your chances of getting cancer down the road. Right, yeah I have to admit I'm you know, favor the colonoscopy too for that reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the whole point. Let's catch this early mm -hmm. and do something about it early on, mm -hmm. uh, you know, before it grows into something. Mm -hmm. um, but the best colon cancer screening method is one that gets done. This is correct. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, if you have whatever reason you really don't want to do a colonoscopy, if you'd please do that. Yes. At least then you'd have some mm -hmm. benefit. Um, I might note that sometimes insurance, if they approved you having an at-home colon cancer screening kit as your screening that was covered under your insurance, then they sometimes won't cover the colonoscopy if it ends up showing something or being yes. positive. Have you well, seen that? It, we have seen that, and that will happen every time because now your colonoscopy is no longer for screening. Screening means no symptoms, no problems, just average risk. The fact that you had a positive test means that there's an abnormality that we're looking into. Yeah. And so that's why it ends up being a diagnostic exam rather than a screening exam and usually going for towards someone's deductible on their insurance. Going back a little bit, what is a colon polyp? Sure. And what causes colon yeah. polyps? So colon polyps are little growths in the, in the skin lining of your bowel. You have a skin on the inside, just like inside your mouth all the way through and they're just little growths that start out even just as a small little couple millimeters can grow into almost looking like a mushroom shape and it's just an overgrowth of skin that because of some errors that it made in how it grew and divided um, abnormally and in terms of sort of reducing your risk of forming polyps some of it's genetic you can't control that but um, not smoking reduces colon polyp risk eating a high fiber diet and limiting processed meats, all are things that have been shown to reduce the risk of polyp formation. Yeah, so get screened. Yes. Um, I would like to talk about uh, probiotics a little right. bit, because okay. I get asked about those a lot. Mm -hmm. what, um, what do you recommend for probiotics? Probiotics are interesting because there's a lot of research out there about probiotics and it's nearly all positive, meaning they're good for you. However, in terms of which one is the right one or the best one, we don't know. Yeah. There's, um, there's just so much differences between how all the research trials were done, what types of bacteria, how many, was it a live, uh, live bacteria or a dead bacteria, to know what is the best. And so in general, I, I think that the best data is behind um, lactobacillus, like that comes from milk, that lacto word, and then one called Saccharomyces, which is a bread-based bacteria. Um, would, is it to the point where you'd recommend probiotics for everyone, even if they've never had an mm -hmm. issue? Yeah. Or? I think of a probiotic kind of like you would take a multivitamin for your general health, but this is for your gut. So. We can all get all of the vitamins and minerals and nutrients that we need 
in our body through our diet. Do you need a multivitamin? Maybe not, but we all live a crazy busy life. Some days you eat better than others, and so it's nice to have that insurance policy. So probiotics kind of the same way. It's it's very much good for you, but if you eat lots of fruits, vegetables, high fiber diet, you're probably getting everything you need in that regard okay. anyway. Good. Yeah, and I sometimes add, you know, certainly like say if, if, if someone's on an antibiotic, there's a good reason to be on a probiotic. Very too. true, very true. Yeah. Um, I want to go back talking to Dave Heim, good friend of mine, and he did such a great job. We made this into two roll-ins. So. It is important to find out early if you have colon cancer and begin treatment. It is also important for your well-being to find out if you don't have it. I think it's very important. Uh, I was very fortunate. Um, because I had stage two. I would not put it off. I would not recommend to put it off. Having a colonoscopy, it was a very simple procedure. Yes, there's the issue of the cleansing the night before, but in reality, it's really, with everything that I've gone through, that, that's an easy step in the process. What I'm hearing now is um, if you have history in your family, then by all means, if you have colon cancer, by all means, you need to talk to your primary and you and your primary should determine when you should have your colonoscopy. The purpose of getting a colonoscopy is to make sure that you do not have colon cancer or it is more important for your personal health so that um, you don't have a progressed cancer that you were totally unaware of. Um, I, like I said, I was fortunate. I went in for my colonoscopy. I was at stage two. Um, some people are at stage three and four, and which is much more serious. In and out in the morning, um, they kind of caution you to, I took the full day off, and so to, to recover and you know, and I'm glad I did because of, you know, oh, we had to do a biopsy. But most people have it done and, and they're good to go. I thought, why did I put it off? I made such a big production overnight. I mean, it was like, but I knew I had to have it done, so I waited to the last minute. I would encourage you not to. If your primary is telling you to have your colonoscopy, then by all means, you need to get it scheduled. I think it's important. Um, because if I would have waited, it could have been worse. We don't know. Um, every person, I believe, is different. I'm like my oncologist says, you know, because you have rectal cancer, you're not the same as this other person who has it or another patient that he has. So um, you really get to know your oncologist and your staff to know, to know more about yourself, I guess. I mean, cancer is, it is what it is. And I had another cancer survivor tell me, she said, it will be a year out of your life. Just fight it like you've fought everything in your life, just fight it. And what happens, happens. It is what it is. Thank you very much, David. Thanks so much. That was great. You know, one point that he had brought up is that his mom had encouraged him to get it and was the one that got him to do his colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. And how important that is for so many things of someone's health is when they have a family member kind of pushing them on. Mm -hmm. So if you I know could. someone in your family that they need to get it done, go ahead and nag a little or, or encourage them because mm -hmm. it could really 
save their life and make a difference. It's true. Yeah. Let's move on to celiac disease. Sure. What is celiac disease? Celiac disease is an autoimmune condition. Autoimmune means that your immune system is sort of attacking part of your own body. And it is triggered by eating products that contain wheat. So it's a, it's a complete intolerance to any food that has wheat in it, such as bread, pasta, things like that. Yeah, that gluten protein. Correct, that's the component of the wheat that is triggering the disease. <laughs> and how might someone know, you know, if they're listening to their gut, how they maybe might have celiac? Sure, the most common symptoms of celiac disease would be diarrhea, abdominal pain and cramps, bloating, sometimes a lot of fatigue goes with it. Is it something a person's gonna have their whole life or can you get it even later in life? It is something that a person's actually born with the genetics to have it, but it shows up at some point. The most common age would be teenage years to age 20s, but it can be diagnosed at any age. Sometimes people will live most of their life into their 50s, 60s, even before it shows up. And how do you diagnose it then? It can be diagnosed by blood test, often uh, is enough. Sometimes then it's confirmed with a, a scope going down into the stomach and upper small bowel to take some biopsies. Now, I've had some patients that, you know, they had the test done, they don't have celiac, but they went on a gluten-free diet mm -hmm. and they felt better. Mm -hmm. How, why would that be? I think that it really relates back to irritable bowel syndrome. You know, there used, we, in GI, we would talk about non-celiac gluten sensitivity for a long time. And then the FODMAP diet, which is part of the treatment for irritable bowel syndrome was discovered. And what that has to do with how the bacteria that live in your gut digest different starches and sugars that you eat. And gluten is one of those um, chemicals that bacteria make a lot of waste products when you eat gluten. And sometimes that can cause a lot of excessive gas, changes to your bowel consistency and general abdominal discomfort. Yeah, so once they, for celiac and gluten sensitivity, once they stop eating gluten, they feel better. Correct. Now going to irritable bowel syndrome, mm -hmm. what, what is that? So irritable bowel syndrome can be characterized by either, by having altered bowel habits, and that can be either diarrhea or constipation, or sometimes people flip back and forth between the two, and usually accompanied by some degree of abdominal pain and there would be an absence of any kind of inflammatory disorder inside the body. And so, you know, they've had the tests and done the studies mm -hmm. and everything comes back normal then. It, yes, exactly. So just because everything comes back normal doesn't mean everything is normal. Is kind of what I tell people. Yeah. It doesn't mean what they're experiencing is normal. Yeah. Because, but, because, but that is the hallmark, that there's no breakdown. Nothing is, nothing is being destroyed on the inside, which is good because it means the danger level of irritable bowel syndrome is very low, but symptoms can still be very high. Yeah. Do you, are you seeing some good benefit from the FODMAP diet then? We do, we do. It's, it's, um, it really makes a big difference in people's stool consistency as well as their bloating and abdominal discomfort for most people with irritable bowel. Is there any other treatment for it that you found helpful? There are many other treatments that are out there. Some of them are focused on treating the former consistency of your stool. If you're, take, if you're having a lot of loose bowel movements, you might need to be on a regimen of anti-diarrhea pills or 
Conversely, if you have a lot of constipation, you may need to be on increased fiber or even some laxative medications. And then there are other prescription medications that can help with the discomfort. And finally, uh, physical activity is very mm -hmm. helpful. Yeah. And getting good rest at night. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes antidepressants mm -hmm. are helpful. Now, why would that be? Again, the antidepressants, it goes back to the pain component of irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. Pain's a very common feature of it. And many antidepressants actually have activity on the pain receptors inside the body. So it's not so much that we're that we think you're secretly depressed or that we're just turning something off you know, in your brain, in your mood to not be in pain. It's that they're really working on those pain receptors. And it, they, similar medicines get used for other types of pain too, migraine headaches and, and chronic leg pains, things like that. That goes back to the show. We're talking about listening to your gut and your second brain. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The, those receptors mm -hmm. there. Yeah. So, you know, if someone comes in with um, blood in their stools, mm -hmm. what, what goes through your mind of what might be going on? And, and is that something they should get checked out? Yes, <laughs> that's what I was going to do. The first thing I was going to say was <laughs> blood in your stool is never normal. Yeah. It may not, there are some things that cause it that are not dangerous, such as very common hemorrhoids, for instance, but, um, but it's never quite normal. And so it is something to have checked out or talked to your doctor about. If it's bright red in color and not a large volume, hemorrhoids um, or varicose veins around your bottom would be the most common cause of it. But it can, especially when it's dark or tarry looking, could be a sign of an ulcer as we talked about earlier and blood whether bright or dark in color can sometimes be a signal of a large polyp or cancer on the inside so again things that should all be evaluated and diarrhea and uh, uh, and and uh, uh, bloody stools mm -hmm. getting at is what if they have inflammatory bowel disease sure, some what, sort is, of what is that yeah so inflammatory bowel disease is another autoimmune condition or condition where you're immune system, instead of fighting some infection or cancer or something foreign, it's fighting your own intestines and breaking it down. And the difference, as we talked about irritable bowel syndrome, where there's no damage on the inside, in these conditions, it's actually breaking it down, making ulcers, making holes, things like that on the inside. So it can be very painful. It seems like we've seen more of that. Mm -hmm. Are we just diagnosing more or are there more people with it for some reason? I think it's a combination. You know, anytime awareness goes up about a condition, you are going to diagnose more of it. More people and the public being more aware, you're more likely to come in and have your symptoms evaluated. But I think especially in the case of one particular type of inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, there are many environments factors that contribute to it so there are obviously things that are changing in the world around us that are triggering some of these things. So with ulcerative colitis what is some of the symptoms of that and what do you end up seeing on a colonoscopy? Or? Sure. So again symptoms would be Bloody diarrhea is really the hallmark of yeah. that one, often a degree of abdominal pain. Sometimes people are even losing weight because of the amount of damage that's happening on the inside. And when we look inside with a colonoscopy, instead of seeing a nice, smooth, pink lining, almost like you might see if you looked at the inside of your mouth in the mirror, um, it would just look very raw and red. Sometimes it always gets described as looking like raw hamburger or something like that. I mean, it's mm. really very... Um, very abnormal looking on the inside. Yeah. And what helps with that then? How's, what's the treatment? Medication therapies. Um, yeah. Some are pill medicines and some are even IV therapies. Mm -hmm. Okay. And to kind of 
suppress the immune system Correct. and so. anti-inflammatory steroids. And, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so as opposed to also, um, so that's ulcerative colitis, Correct. but as opposed to Crohn's disease, what, how, what, what's the difference there? The difference, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease are really very similar, and the trigger is very similar in terms of coming from your immune system. However, the location and pattern to the damage on the inside uh, is quite different. The ulcerative colitis is just in your colon or large bowel, where the Crohn's can be in the small intestine and stomach anywhere throughout your GI tract. And the depth of injury is much more in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Okay, and the treatment then is the same? Treatments again. are very similar. Um, ulcerative colitis sometimes can be managed with high-dose anti-inflammatory drugs alone as opposed to immune suppression, uh, where Crohn's always requires an immune suppression, but really the same medications are used to treat both illnesses. Okay. Um, hepatitis C mm -hmm. is something that I understand you help treat. Yes in Sioux City. Correct. And so who do you recommend getting tested for hepatitis C or when or why? Well, the guidelines at this point in time from the CDC is that really anyone of that baby boomer generation should be tested regardless of risk factors. We used to screen people for risk factors, which would be anything that would put you in blood-to-blood -blood contact with another person, such as a blood transfusion, history of dr needle drug use in the past. Um, maybe even something such as being in a really bad car accident where, where there was blood exchange. There's a variety of ways it can happen. So we used to screen people for risk factors and then just test people based on that. But we've really found that there are a lot of people you can't trace back and figure out where their infection came from. A lot of that probably has to do with changes in infection control practice in medicine over the years. And, um, and so anyone in that age range, it's recommended to be screened at least one time regardless of risk factors. Because they can have it without knowing it. It's true. It's, it is an illness that really does not cause symptoms until it's really caused a lot of damage. And so people often have it even for decades before they know that they have it and are sick. And being a hepatitis, it's a liver disease. Correct. Correct. Um, Chronic you know, virus of the liver. When I think of way back when, when I was in residency training, <laughs> um, I did help cure some people with hepatitis right. C, um, but it was quite the regimen and with a lot of side effects. And that has changed. I, I've <laughs> Thank heard. the Lord. Yeah. How, when does that happen, right? We have <laughs> medication that's easier to tolerate and does a better job at curing yeah. it. So in the past, there was a lot of injection therapy that was used, and it caused a lot of side effects. But the pills, the pill regimens that we have now have, for most people, more than a 95% cure rate wow. with limited or no side effects. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is a disease that wreaked havoc on a lot of people mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. So that's good. So get, get And it's tested. curable. It doesn't, it's not a suppression thing. It's, it's once you treat it, it's gone. Yeah. Excellent. Um, say as a GI doctor in general, what mm -hmm. do you recommend people to do for their GI health? Um, I would say lots of fiber in the diet and drinking a lot of water are the two biggest things that, the, that anybody can do. It helps many different aspects of your GI health. And yes, there are some conditions that we just talked about that, you know, that didn't even enter into what I was talking about, the treatment. So there are yeah. certain, and there are times where that may not be enough, but it really will help everyone yeah. to have lots of fiber and fluids. With um, COVID-19, mm -hmm. are there some conditions you've seen more of now, maybe either because of the virus and because of the way society's changed, maybe. 
I would say um, in the GI world there may not be as much impact as some others such as lungs and, think, and heart. There's a lot of heart complications that are coming in. There, there certainly have been, we talked about those types of autoimmune colitis. There is colitis that can be caused by COVID-19. Um, and something that will be yet to be determined as time moves on is in that time period of 2020 when our healthcare seeking practices were different, much yeah. less. You know, are there people who had mild disease that has now advanced to something much more serious because of that? There, there may be some. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely there was a period of time where people weren't coming in. Doctor's offices were telling people not to That's come exactly. in. Exactly. Or doing more virtual visits and not mm -hmm. getting hands on the patient and Correct. helping to detect things and some preventative care. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, hopefully that is not, not affected too much. Um, we were talking about irritable bowel syndrome mm -hmm. there, and we talked about the FODMAP, but we didn't really explain it much. Sure. Let's go back to that and explain what that diet is. Uh, well, it's a little bit complicated one, actually. <laughs> so, that's okay. It's not as simple, and that's kind of what I, what, um, what I tell people on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not as simple as saying go low-fat or eat more fiber, things like that. It's yeah. actually a very particular list of which fruits and vegetables and wheat grain products have higher amounts of oligosaccharides, which are the types of sugars and starches versus lower amounts. Now, if you're on this diet, it's not something so much so that eat these foods and you can never eat these foods, but it more points out with a, with a pattern that can be difficult to yeah. figure out on your own um, what foods might be triggering you. Do you end up sending them to a dietitian kind of to go through that if they can? Um, if their insurance will cover it, we, we do send yeah. to dietitians. Um, otherwise, we do, you know, we carry a lot of information at our office that we'll either send home with people or mail, mail to them for them to study. And certainly we talk about it at our visits too. Many of our viewers are in across South Dakota, mm -hmm. and some are further away from a gastroenterologist <laughs> or a dietitian for mm -hmm. that matter. Mm -hmm. Any resources in particular you would recommend to them to maybe try that diet or, or to get help for whatever you know sure. diet changes? Well, if you have access to the web, the internet in any way, you can really just look it up, FODMAP, it's like food map. And tell people because it's kind of your map of your food, but leave out one of the O's. Um, and and it's pretty. It's something that's pretty well out there. Um, but if you were having a difficult time finding that information, I'm sure your primary care doctor could offer it to you as well. Yeah. Um, constipation. All right. I can't believe we haven't talked about constipation. <laughs> it's yet. very common. It's very very common. Um, what do you recommend for constipation? <laughs> And so, like most illnesses, it's something that will vary greatly in severity from person to person. Um, the first steps are fiber and fluids, as I talked about, making sure you're getting adequate amounts of both of those in the diet. Staying physically active helps to reduce constipation as well. And when that's not enough, then sometimes people need to move on to medications, whether that's over-the-counter or prescription therapies. In general, it's recommended that you find a regimen to help your bowels to move a minimum of twice a week, though many people will need to go more frequently to feel comfortable. Yeah, you know, people talk about being regular. Mm -hmm. What's regular? It varies very much from person to yeah. person, and so you don't always have to have one perfect bowel movement every morning. Um, some people go two and three and four times a day and that can be very normal if the form is normal and they're not having a lot of symptoms. And likewise, some people may only go every other day. But again, as long as they're not straining or having a difficult time to pass that stool, that's okay. That's regular for yeah. you. Yeah. 
I, you know, going back to some of the, the hemorrhoids, bleeding mm -hmm. that we were talking about, you know, constipation is definitely mm -hmm. related to that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that can also contribute to causing anal fissures. Correct. And or um, what, what is an anal fissure? Sure. An anal fissure is just a tear in the skin around the opening where your stool comes out that usually would come from an episode of either straining, pushing very hard to pass a stool or a stool that's very dry or dehydrated can, can tear things as that skin stretches to let it come out. Yeah, I've often had patients describe it as pooping glass. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so how do you how do you treat that? Sure. So um, the, to get through that fissure and get it closed, there's a lot of topical therapy that can help reduce the pain, swelling, and irritation around it. But the biggest thing is to get the bowel pattern regular again to prevent that from happening because your skin will actually heal very quickly. It's just like a cut almost anywhere else on your body. It, does, it takes only but a few days for it to heal up. But if you don't take away that force that's causing it, it's just going to happen recurrently. Yeah. What are uh, some changes in the practice of gastroenterology that you've seen in your career? That's a good question. <laughs> um, no, that's okay. So, I mean, there is certainly more women in the field, I would say, as time goes on, which I think is great, um, being yeah. one myself, obviously. But, yeah. um, and then I think it's just all the new discoveries that come along, you know, We've talked, touched on a few of them over the year, over the evening here. Uh, hepatitis C, we didn't know about until in the 1980s. H. pylori bacteria, that's one of the primary causes of ulcer. We didn't know until within the last 40 years or so. Too. How can someone get tested for that? There is a stool test or a breath test that's very reliable. If you're ever having a scope to look for ulcers, it would also be tested through a biopsy there. And then how do you treat that? It is a course of the acid reducers like omeprazole, Prilosec we talked about, plus uh, two weeks of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Very good, very good. Um, the, uh, the other thing we didn't really talk about much was diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> so when someone has diarrhea, uh, what are some treatment recommendations you have for them? I'm going back to the fiber. It yeah. sounds a little bit odd, but it's the one thing out there that can actually treat both the constipation and the diarrhea. It helps soften the stools and pull the water. It pulls the water. It attracts the water. That's how it works. So when your stools are too hard, it pulls water into that hard stool. When your stools are too loose, it attracts that water to kind of form it up and get it to come together a little bit. Um, and you know, so that's a good place to start. Abnormal diarrhea that you should always talk to your doctor about would be is if you can't get to the bathroom in time mm -hmm. or if you're waking up at night to poop. Those things are less common with, mm -hmm. with these more milder types of diarrhea that can be managed by your diet or even some over-the-counter anti-diarrheal medications. So fiber, 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 what, what fiber. Fiber in, in what foods? In what? Uh, fruits, vegetables, whole grains. Yes, so mm -hmm. healthy diet, exercise, water, mm -hmm. so, and don't spend too much time on the toilet then, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> sounds good. That sounds I good. really appreciate you coming in, Sarah, and uh, it's just been so uh, fun to be in practice now for a while and having a lot of our fellow we were classmates in yes. medical school together, and many of them have come back to South Dakota mm -hmm. uh, from going elsewhere for residency and stuff, and, and, uh, and 
just uh, catching up in our professional lives now. It's true, there's another med school classmate of ours that actually my cousin's wife messaged me on Facebook one day to say, I saw your friends with them and I was yeah. looking at them to be my doctor. <laughs> what do you know, what can you tell me? And of course yeah. I said, go right ahead, <laughs> he's great. Well, so. thank you. Mm -hmm. And now for the answer to tonight's, tonight's Prairie Doc Quiz question, true or false? The rate of people being diagnosed with colon or rectal cancer each year has dropped overall since the mid-1980s. True or false? And the answer is true. According to the American Cancer Society, the rate of people being diagnosed with colon or rectal cancer each year has dropped overall since the mid-1980s, mainly because more people are getting screened and changing their lifestyle-related risk factors. But the lifetime risk for men is 1 in 23, and for women it is 1 in 25. So get screened. We'll be right back after this. For nearly two decades, the Prairie Doc organization has endeavored to enhance health and diminish suffering by providing useful information based on honest science in a respectful and compassionate manner. Health professionals volunteer to answer your questions each week, creating a vast Prairie Doc library of medical information available to you and your family 24 hours a day. Make sure you don't miss a thing. Follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube for free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc Library. We all know the feeling. You ate too much and now your stomach is letting you know about it. Or maybe you ate some junk food and now you don't feel well. How is it that another slice of pizza one moment seems like exactly what we want? but later we realize it was not what we needed. In the simplest of terms, it comes down to hunger and cravings. The message for hunger is initiated by the body. When our stomach is empty and our blood sugar and insulin levels begin to drop, our bodies release the hormone ghrelin and send it to the hypothalamus in our brains, resulting in a desire to eat. Cravings, however, are entirely controlled by our brains. Fatty and sugary foods help release feel-good opioids and dopamine in our brains. The message in this case is a misapplied sense of reward. Our bodies, especially the gastrointestinal system, respond directly to what we put into them. Many common problems like abdominal pain, heartburn or reflux, constipation, and diarrhea are often directly caused by our diet. Other conditions like irritable bowel syndrome and celiac disease can also be treated by a change in diet. Cutting down on processed meats and processed carbohydrates may help decrease your risk of colon cancer. Thus, when it comes to filling our hungry stomachs with healthy options, there are ways to overpower the feel-good cravings from our brains. First, turn off the TV. Plenty of studies have shown that we eat more than we ought to with the TV on. That goes for your phone, too. Second, slow down. Savor your food. Give your body time to send the signals from your digestive tract to your brain that you've had enough. Third, Drink water while you eat. Room temperature water is best for digestion. Also, we often misinterpret being thirsty for being hungry. 
Having a glass of water before you eat can help satisfy your thirst and help you eat less. Fourth, eat with someone, in person, via Zoom, or phone call. When you eat with someone, you are more likely to make healthier choices and eat slower. Our bodies know what is good for us. We just need to understand the messages. Next time you have a craving or think you feel hungry, rather than automatically eating more, take time to assess your situation. If you discover you are tired, stressed, sad, angry, or lonely, appreciate your new self-awareness and explore behaviors other than eating that could better satisfy your needs. If what you are feeling truly is hunger, give your body what it really wants, a healthy diet. A big thank you to our guest, Dr. Sarah Bly, for volunteering her time to help us learn more about the importance of listening to our gut. If you would like more information about this program or to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. That does it for tonight. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. When a family member or close friend enters end-of-life health management, they move into a variety of treatment options, hospice and palliative care. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc. Hello to all, I am Dr. Tom Luzier, a practicing allergist in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Born in Kansas, I embraced the diversity of South Dakota. This diversity comes with a price, limited health care resources and information. The Healing Words Foundation through Prairie Doc provides an open, online, interactive, public broadcasting format for reliable health information. As a member of the Healing Words Foundation board, I am asking you please to join me in support of this work, which is funded entirely by donations from you. Please consider making a personal or corporate gift to Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3. Go to prairie.org and click on the donate button and make a valuable contribution. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, 
Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialists, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Health Communications.